Well, in preparation for this message this morning in Luke 2, it's one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. But I was uh, researching a, and I heard about a story. I came across a story that happened about 25 years ago. It was about a woman who gave birth to her first child, and it was a boy. And she was excited about two months after the boy had come to celebrate his life with her special friends. So what she decided to do was to host a party and uh, bring all of her close friends and family there to celebrate his life. Well, it was interesting because as her friends started coming into the house, they started eating together, they were drinking together, they were celebrating this newborn life. And about an hour and an hour and a half go by and uh, one of uh, her closest friends spoke up and said, Lisa was her name, Lisa, we haven't seen your son yet. You know, can you, can you show us your son? And she said, oh, I'd love to. So she went upstairs to the nursery because she had thought she had put her son down uh, for, for a nap. And, and she opens up the door of the nursery looking in the crib. And to her surprise, the baby wasn't there. And she was dumbfounded. She was shocked. She was horrified. And she was just freaking out. And so she began to retrace her steps to find out what happened. And sure enough, she remembered that she had left her son with her parents that morning. And she was supposed to go back to the house to pick him up before the party and bring him back. But she totally forgot that minor detail. <laughs> so, so she said, I, I'm so sorry, but my parents still have my son. And, uh, and I'll try to get him over here as soon as possible. I bring that up because I'm about to read to you one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. And I know this week for most of us, is going to be pretty hectic because we're either preparing uh, to go and to visit family, so we're preparing our luggage, our, our cars, etc., or we're preparing to host a bunch of family. And so we're preparing our house. The, the kids are going to finish out the year in school this week. Many of you are going to close out your jobs this week for the rest of the year. And so it can be a stressful time. And so what I, what I don't want from you is for you to be thinking about what's going to happen this week, right now. But instead, I simply just want to ask you to remember the reason for the season as I read this familiar text. And I encourage you to turn off the busyness of this week and to really tune in to what's going on here that, that Luke wants us to, to learn about so that we don't uh, forget the main reason why we're here. So Luke chapter 2 is our text this morning, beginning with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There are certain openings to familiar, whether it's words that we read, books that we read, movies that we watch, or things that have been said in history where the opening line that somebody gives, uh, the audience knows what's going to happen after that opening line is given. Let me give an example. Four scores and seven years ago, 
We know the rest of that speech from Abraham Lincoln. To be or not to be. We know the rest of that part. We also know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. That's another famous one. Or when in the course of human events. These are famous openings to speeches or to books where you can look back and say, yeah, I know what follows. Well, when you look at verse 1, and Luke wrote these words, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is one of those opening phrases that the world knows. And we know what happens after this opening statement is made. And what happens after, Luke gives us three things in this very brief seven-verse account of the birth narrative of Jesus. Luke wants us to understand the history behind the birth. He wants us to understand the sovereignty around the birth and over the birth, God's sovereignty. And he wants us to see the ordinary of the birth. So three words I want you to think about today. I want you to think about history. I want you to think about sovereignty. And I want you to think about ordinary. And this all is around the birth of Jesus Christ. So Luke first wanted us to see the history behind the birth narrative. And what I want you to notice is that Luke 2 verse 1 doesn't start out with once upon a time, does it? It doesn't start out with once upon a time because the birth of Jesus is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. But it's a historical event that took place. It had real people, in real time, in real places. And as you read through the gospel of Luke, the whole purpose that Luke mentioned of why he wrote this gospel was to convince one of his friends, Theophilus, that the life of Jesus was true, that it indeed happened. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, these are the words Luke said to his friend, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated Everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Right here, Luke was making the point to his friend, I'm writing this historical narrative of the life of Jesus to convince you that these things actually did happen. Because I'm sure Luke was concerned that as Theophilus, as a new believer, he's a non-Jew, he's reading these words, that he might be thinking, well, this all seems to be outlandish, seems to be mythical, seems to have not have actually happened, a fairy tale. But Luke gives us great history behind these words in Luke chapter 2, not only to convince his friend Theophilus, but to convince the watching world that the birth of Jesus actually did happen. And in verse 1, he starts out by talking about an event that took place. It was a decree that was issued by a man, Caesar Augustus. Now, why did Caesar Augustus issue this decree in this time in history? Well, Caesar Augustus was power-hungry, like a lot of leaders today. And Caesar Augustus, he knew that to increase his power and to increase his might and strength... He needed to issue a census. Because after all, if you issue a census, then it makes everybody in your empire go back to your original home and register your name so that you and your family are accounted for. And as people would register their names and their family members' names, it did two things. Number one, it helped the government know who to tax 
so they could get more money to build this empire. And number two, it helped build a military. Because after all, every young man would be accounted for, and that's what Caesar Augustus wanted. He wanted a stronger military. That's why he issued this decree. Luke not only gave us that this specific event took place in these times, but he also talked about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the adopted, adopted son of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, he had in his will that, that, that Augustus would end up becoming the emperor. Now, Augustus was actually not named originally Augustus. His name was Gaius Octavius. But when he was 19 years old, he became the emperor of Rome, and he's known as one of the most prolific and profound leaders of all time. But they named him Caesar Augustus because Augustus means supreme ruler. It means sublime. It means majestic one. And so when Caesar Augustus became emperor, he built this empire where all the people in his empire would equate him as if he were a god. There were many Greek cities around the region who actually claimed that the day of his birth, September 23rd, would become the new year. And they, they declared it the new year because they said, he is the savior. So Caesar Augustus, to many people, was considered godlike, a savior, a supreme ruler. And Luke wanted to emphasize this in his gospel. But the other person he mentioned, if you notice here, was Quirinius, verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Who was Quirinius? He was a Roman official. And before he became governor of Syria, he was a politician, a senator. He was a lawyer. He was known for being a dignified man. He also was a military commander who led many battles and won many battles for Caesar Augustus. That's why he became governor of Syria. He was known for being one of the richest men in the region. So Luke wanted to emphasize these two people because they were real. And they were not only powerful, but they were wealthy. But not only were they powerful and wealthy, but whatever they said would be done. So what Caesar wants, Caesar gets. And if you look here in verse 3, it said, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. <clears throat> so again, what Caesar wants, Caesar gets. And when he says something, it's going to be done. Luke not only mentioned the event of a decree, he mentioned the people, the historical figures, but he also mentioned four different places. Syria, Galilee, Nazareth, Bethlehem, four of these places that were real places. So what's Luke trying to, to get at here? He's saying there is history behind the birth of Jesus, and he wants all of us to know that. The second thing we see around this familiar text is God's sovereignty over the birth of Jesus. Now, when Caesar made this decree, he, he didn't realize what God was doing behind the scenes. Here, Caesar was thinking, I'm building my own empire, but yet behind the scenes, God was building a much bigger empire than he would ever, ever imagine. And he was building it in a small, insignificant town in Bethlehem. You know, I like what Ligon Duncan said about this. He said, Luke is reminding us that the most powerful institutions and men in the world are but pawns in the hands of the providence of God in the work of saving his people. These powerful men were, were merely pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. 
who does works for his glory and for his people. And what God was doing behind the scenes was he was fulfilling prophecy that was given about the birth hundreds of years before it took place. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we read these words. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This was a prophecy written five to seven hundred years before Jesus was born. And Micah prophesied that one day a supreme ruler would come from the little town of Bethlehem. Caesar's census got Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. God was orchestrating this the whole way through. Caesar had no idea. But God knew. Because God knows all. Not only do we see this prophecy fulfilled, that Joseph and Mary would would go to Bethlehem and Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but we also know in verse 4 of Luke 2 that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This is a big thing we can't miss about the Christmas story, and that is that Joseph was from the line of David. David, we know, was in Bethlehem, just as Ruth was in Bethlehem. We know about that. Joseph, he came from the line of David. And because Joseph came from the line of David, when Jesus was born, prophecy was fulfilled from 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. When God promised the King David hundreds of years before Jesus came, he said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever, God made this covenant promise with David that in his line would come a king that would have a forever kingdom. Joseph was in the line of David. The decree got Joseph to Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was from the line of David. Yet another prophecy fulfilled. And here again, we see that this was important details that God was orchestrating behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes. But you know the other thing that I thought was interesting is verse 5. Joseph went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Most of the time, whenever a decree was issued, you would only need one person that would represent an entire family to go and register. It was the head of the household. So the father, the husband, would go back to his hometown and he would register his entire family. But yet we know from verse 5 that Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem. Why? Well, some scholars said, well, Mary may have owned some land in Bethlehem. But I think the reason is, is that Joseph took Mary with her because she was in her third trimester. And he didn't want to miss the birth. He wanted to be with Mary When Jesus came. And so he gathered Mary with her. And they made the three day journey to Bethlehem. And by the way tradition says she rode a donkey. We don't know that to be true. She could have walked the three day journey. In her third trimester. Speaking from experience. When we had our first daughter. I think we were close to being on time. Or a little late. And we were asking the doctor. What do we do to get this thing going? And she said take your wife on a walk. We went on a mile and a half walk, and my feet, or my, my wife's feet were 
hurting. She was exhausted. And I look back and I wish we had done a mile or a half a mile, not a mile and a half. But I'll tell you this much. Abby came into this world within 24 hours after that walk. We see here, Mary took the three-day journey. And then we see right after that what happened in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So when they reached Bethlehem, Jesus came into this world. It was time. The decree had been issued. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, registered. Jesus was born. But what I want you to see is a decree that was even more significant than the one of Caesar Augustus. And that decree was much more significant and more powerful than Caesar Augustus's decree. It was, the, it was the decree that God the Father made with God the Son in the beginning of time. It's what we call the covenant of redemption. And it was the plan that the Father and the Son orchestrated at the beginning of time that one day the Son would be sent into this world, he would live a perfect life, and he would die for the salvation of his people, for the forgiveness of their sins. That was the decree that was had in the very beginning of time. And now it was time. Galatians 4, 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, to be born. And this was God's sovereign plan. He had planned it. He had orchestrated it. And the people at this time had no idea what was taking place. In the year 1809, Napoleon was establishing his kingdom. He was building his kingdom, and he was going and sweeping through Austria. War was all over the place throughout Austria. And so the big news of the day was Napoleon is sweeping through Austria and winning battle after battle, and there's bloodshed everywhere. There's war. But yet there was something else going on in 1809 that the people of the day had no idea was happening. And that was there were five individuals who were born that same year in 1809, but they weren't born in Austria. They were born in Britain and in America. William Gladstone was born that year. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. Alfred Tennyson was born in 1809, and he was born from an obscure minister and his wife, an unknown minister and his wife. But the child would one day greatly affect the literary world. On the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge. And not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809. And then in a small town in Hardin County, Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. You know the the Fox News alert that you see, and there's always these big alerts every day. It's like, how many alerts are we going to get? But the Fox News alert of the day of Napoleon was, Napoleon is starting war, and he's going through Austria. And that's the news story of the day. But yet there was a much bigger news story that was shaping history in England and in America of all these baby boys that would be born that nobody knew nothing about. In the same way, the main story of Caesar's day was Caesar has issued a decree, but yet God had a much bigger story, new story, and that is the Messiah has come and he's been born in Bethlehem lying in a manger. Can you see the sovereignty written all over this story? 
There's history behind it. There's God's sovereignty all over it. And now we get to the ordinary of the birth of Jesus. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is all we get from Luke. We get two details. And, and in the shepherd's account, we'll, we'll learn about on Christmas Eve, the sign that the angels gave to the shepherds to go find Jesus was these two things. Swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. That's what we know about the baby. Okay, that's pretty ordinary, isn't it? So let's look at it. First, swaddling clothes. You know what swaddling clothes makes me think about? It doesn't make me think about poverty. It makes me think about how Jesus was common. After all, that's what parents do. They swaddle their babies. They still do it to this day. Case in point, when we had our four babies, what did we do like most young parents do? We got a bunch of books, and we started reading. And we said, how do we do this thing? And one of the books we read was Happiest Baby on the Block. And it said, how do you make your baby happy? And we realized there are four S's that we need to do to help this baby be happy. And ultimately, mom and dad to be happy. And that was to get your baby to sleep, your newborn baby to sleep. You do first, you shh. The S is shush. Second is you, you swaddle. Third is you sway. And the fourth is they have to be sucking on something like a pacifier. And if you do those four things, you'll get a happy baby and you'll get a sleepy baby and you'll get to sleep. And so message received for me. I said, this is so helpful. And so why do we swaddle our babies? Well, it protects their limbs. It keeps them tight. And so we did this with all of our kids. But I'll tell you, out of all four of my kids, and he's sitting over there, Caleb was the most difficult. Why? Because he's a boy. He's all boy, and he doesn't sit still like his daddy. And there was one night, I kid you not, it was around 2 in the morning. I'm exhausted. Baby's crying. I go into the nursery. And what do I do with Caleb? I follow the four S's. I'm exhausted. I'm not thinking. Okay, I put him in a swaddle. You know, I start to get in my rocking chair and sway him. I'm shh. And I get that pacifier in that mouth. And after about 15 minutes of a battle, he goes to sleep. And it's a sweet thing to watch, even at 2 in the morning. It's sweet. But I was so glad he fell asleep. And so I slowly get Caleb, and I call him my little burrito, because you wrap him up, he looks like a burrito. So I get my little burrito, and I, I put him in the, in the crib. I'm like, oh, finally, I can go back to bed. And I start walking out, and then I close the door, and what happens? He starts crying again. And I go in the room, and whoop, arms out of the swaddle. <laughs> What did he do? He hit himself, and it woke him up, and the pacifier goes out, and he's, he's not happy. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. I don't think I slept that night. You know, swaddling was always a challenge. It was fun. But you couldn't swaddle so tight because you could kill the kid, right? But you had to learn to swaddle him or her enough to where they felt protected, warm. That's what the doctors tell you to do when you swaddle. I bring all this up because can you see the commonness of Jesus here? He was swaddled as a baby. I like the, the hymn, Fullness in God and Helpless Babe. The fullness of God was a helpless babe swaddled by his mom and dad, just like we swaddle our newborn babies. 
But the second thing that you, you notice here about the ordinary part of it is the manger. They laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now, we know that the inn probably was so full because of the census. Everybody was rushing to the small town of Bethlehem, so there wasn't a lot of places to stay. And there's debate about what the inn was. It could have been a, a lower level of somebody's house with animals. It, it could have been a stable. It could have been a cave. But what we know is that Jesus was rested and laid in a manger of all places. What does the manger signify? It signifies Jesus' humiliation. That Jesus entered this messy world for messy people. He was born in a mess. A mess. But yet it signified and symbolized his humiliation. That as he would grow older, he would be humiliated by his own people. And he would die. I think of Philippians chapter 2. That explains how Jesus would humble himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The manger points to his humility, the humiliation behind Jesus. And we see it day one, he's born in a manger. You and I would have expected something different. We would have expected Jesus to be born in a palace. The whole world would have known. Yet the first visitors were shepherds, insignificant shepherds, nameless shepherds. But God does things when we least expect. He does the unexpected. You know, Chuck Swindoll, he was saying years ago when he was a kid, he really wanted a basketball for Christmas. So he, he begged his mom and dad every day in December, Mom and Dad, I just want a basketball. And so finally, the day before Christmas, he sees this, this gift under the tree, and it looks like the shape of a basketball, and it has his name on it. And he's thinking, finally, I get my basketball. So Christmas Day, he runs to the tree, he opens up the gift, thinking it's a basketball, and it's a globe. And he said, you can't dribble a globe, Mom and Dad. They ended up getting him a basketball later. But the point he made was, I was expecting a basketball and I got a globe. So it was the least of my expectations. What's going on? In the same way, that's what God does for you and me at times. He does what we least expect. He does the unexpected and we're shocked. But that's what he did here in the Christmas story. The thing I want to end with that I want you to think about with the swaddling cloths and lying in a manger is I want you to be reminded that this was not the only time Jesus was swaddled and wrapped in cloths. We know later in his life, he would be bound. He would be beaten. He'd be taken through a series of trials. Then he would be bound to a cross. Later to die. And then his body would be wrapped in cloths to be placed in the grave, the tomb. But here's the thing I want you to think about. Just as my son got out of that swaddling cloth that night, Jesus bursted out of that linen cloth. He even folded it up and put it away, and death could not hold him down. It couldn't hold him down. Because he's the king of all kings and lord of all lords, and that's why he came. He came so that we could be forgiven of our sins, and he came so that we 
could have someone to follow that is much bigger than us in our lives and in our time. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and death would not keep him down. He humbled himself in the manger. He humbled himself on the cross. He was swaddled at birth. He was swaddled at death. But those linen strips could not hold him down. He is our Lord. He's the reason for the season.